Bible this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to move around in the book a bit this morning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time at one place, but the focus of the message this morning is the question, the church, what is it supposed to be like? The church, what is it supposed to be like? And when I'm talking about the church this morning, I'm speaking of the body of Christ more than just one individual congregation, although a lot of that still applies. But there's an important idea that was so prominent in the New Testament that I find today is sadly missing, is a biblical understanding of the purpose of the church. You know, with the modern proliferation of churches, and, and I've mentioned this congregation before, within a mile or so of where we are sitting, I think there are five or six churches. <laughs> with that proliferation of churches, too often, church has been, become defined as a, 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 an association or even sometimes even a, a clique of similarly minded people who have chosen that particular association to meet their needs for identity, for security, a place to belong, for fellowship. And while church can provide some of that, that is sadly not the purpose of the church. So let me ask a question that might help us get more to the point of the question, and that is, what is the purpose of the church? If I were to ask you this morning, what is the purpose of the church? What would you say? The biblical answer to that question lies not in the way we often want to answer that. The answer is not lying in what can the church do for me. And today often when you talk to people about church and the relationship to a church, that is where the focus is. What can the church do for me? But rather, the biblical answer lies in what does God desire for the church to be? And when we understand the difference in those two answers, we turn the corner from our self-centered involvement in the church to meet my needs to a God-centered desire to participate with God in what He desires the church to be. Once we understand that the primary purpose of the church is to fulfill God's plan rather than to meet our needs, then the Christian life becomes much more than a sustained moral effort to meet some church's expectations of me. To cultivate a, a list of virtues and to avoid a list of vices that I might struggle with. When you and I begin to understand that the church is the manifestation, it's the demonstration of God's will for the continuation of the ministry of reconciliation of the world, and that we as believers are called to participate in that work for His glory rather than for our benefit, then we become compelled to be active members in the body of Christ. So what is the church supposed to be like? And 
The second question with that that I want us to understand this morning is, why is the church supposed to be like this? You've often heard me say the what is important, but the why is even more important. So if you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians, there are, there are three aspects that Paul is concerned about when he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book of 1 Corinthians, but the church at Corinth was a mess. Part of it is because it was made up of people. <laughs> All right? They had a lot of problems. And I guess we don't need to look very far. We find churches all can identify with that. But Paul identifies as he writes through the book of Corinthians, and we're going to end in chapter 13 that you're all familiar with, the love chapter. Paul says your primary problems, the root of all of the problems, the common thing that you struggle with is holiness, unity, and love. Those three. So I want us to, we're just going to walk briefly. There's, there, there's so many things that Paul addresses in this letter to the church at Corinth that we refer to as the first Corinthians because he later writes a second letter as well. But as a result of those believers struggling to understand or forgetting and drifting away from these three, these believers were failing to project the character of God to those about them. And that's what we are to do. We often hear casually that we are the only Bible some people read. To the unsaved world about us, even here in Cluster Springs and in your neighborhood, the church is to project the character of God. That's how they are to understand who God is. By watching the church. Watching how we relate together. Watching what's important to us. Watching what we do. Jesus said, I will build my church. So the body of Christ, the church, is His. And He is the head of it. And we've often affirmed that here. But when we look this morning, consider the body of Christ in general. Jesus is the head of that. And He says, I am building my church. And as the world views the church, they should clearly see the character of God, not the brokenness of man. And so often when you talk to people about church, their response is they'll tell you what they know about a church, what they have witnessed, what they have seen, and often it's not the character of God. And that becomes a huge stumbling block to many of them. So what is the church supposed to be like and why is it supposed to be like that? The first thing that Paul talks about is the church is to be holy. We sang this morning the first hymn about the holiness of God. And 1 Corinthians is clear. Paul says the church is to reflect the holiness of God. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No. But it defines our approach to life. It defines our approach to worshiping God. In chapter 1, notice verse 2 in Paul's greeting to this church. He says, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's a call to holiness. 
That's how Paul defines believers. That's how you and I, as believers, are defined. Let me ask you this question. Do you like being defined that way? If I were to ask this morning, how many of you feel called to be holy? Would you have... Or you... Do we like? We are called to be holy. Sometimes a speaker in front of a group will say, um, I'm going to need a volunteer. And you look around and everybody does this way, right? Because you don't know what that might mean. I mean, he might have you come up and sing a solo or something. Or he might come up and ask you a question that you don't know. He may make you look like an idiot. So most times people are very reluctant to volunteer. You've been in situations like that. So I, I need two volunteers. To, and people, hands are down. God is chosen. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, he's chosen you to be holy. Do you like being chosen to be holy? If he were to be here this morning and say, okay, I need five of you to be holy this next week, would your hand go up? Or you say, brothers and sisters, we are called to be holy. He's called us. That's how he defines the church. That's how believers are supposed to be. That's supposed to be our trademark. And an inevitable part of being holy in the midst of a sinful world is that we're going to possess a certain strangeness. We're not going to fit in. Ooh, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? We all like to fit in. But if we're going to embrace our call to be holy, we're not going to fit in. Holiness, by definition, is a strangeness to the world that is ruled by Satan, the adversary of God. He rules in the hearts and lives of people, right? We see that every day. The world is a broken place because of sin. And you and I who have chosen to follow Christ, who have been delivered from that slavery to sin, remember the message two weeks ago that Tim had for us? The truth sets us free from the slavery of sin. That freedom is going to set us at odds. It will make us different. It will at times make us strange to the culture about us. We are strange because we've been saved from the slavery of sin. We've been set apart from sin and made a special, a different. Peter says a peculiar people in the King James, a chosen generation, a holy nation. So maybe this morning we should ask ourselves a question, just honestly. Why do we at times resist God's plan for us to be chosen? Why do we at times resent being identified as members of the body of Christ? Why do we not enthusiastically embrace our calling to be the declarers of the holiness of God? See, that is how God communicates that to the world. Through his people. That's the only way they're going to understand that God is holy. It's by looking at his church.
And because the church is to be holy, because the church is to be holy, the church has to then be pure when it comes responding to sin. Flip over in your Bible to chapter 5. I don't know of any passage in Scripture that has a clearer statement about the importance of the church to be pure if we are going to be a holy people. The disciplinary action Paul calls for, and I'll just look at the first two verses. Paul speaks very bluntly and straight to this church. He says, "Is reported commonly, in other words, it's widely known, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. Now, the disciplinary action Paul is calling here is all about the holiness of the church. A church member had taken his stepmother in an adulterous relationship. It's known widely within the church. Obviously, it's known outside the church. And in addition to Paul's concern about that church member, he is most concerned, even more concerned, about the church's toleration of that. And in verse 6, notice Paul warns. He says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul warns the church about the consequences on the church when sin is tolerated. Like, like leaven, like yeast in a batch of dough. It, it permeates and affects as widely as it is known. Now, now notice when Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 5, he does not address or yell at the man who's committed the offense. His call out here is to the church that is tolerating the offense. You see, far worse than a church in which someone has, is committing a sin is the church that overlooks it, tolerates it. And it could be for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's, well, who it is, or who that family is, or what their importance has been in the church. You see, one is the error of an individual. The other is an error of an entire body of believers. And their error is that they have then compromised the calling of God for the church to be holy. That's a greater sin and affair. Well, Paul's concern for the holiness of the church can be stated this way. If you can't say what holiness is not, then you can't say what holiness is. And it's often that way with biblical truth. If you can't say what it's not, how can you say what it is? You see, God has always, always, always called His people to be holy. The church is to be marked by holiness. It is to be our trademark. So, when unbelievers consider the church, they should perceive it as a holy community. So I ask a question for us at faith. When people consider our congregation, do they consider us a holy community? Or do they consider us as a group of 
self-righteous people that put on a certain air, but, but we protect our own pet sins. We, we have a toleration for certain things among, because, well, that's us. We need to be holding out to our community the hope of a God-honoring way of life that is not determined by consensus, but is determined by truth. And we'll be looking more about that in, in some subsequent messages. Our commitment to truth, not consensus, but truth. Our commitment to truth has to be greater than any other loyalty. And when it is not, we compromise the holiness that is to be the trademark of the church. And so that's, that's, a, that's a large calling. Does that mean that we don't sin? No. But when we sin, what is our response to our sin? Are we willing to repent of our sin? Or do we want to persist as this man was doing in an adulterous relationship? So, Paul says the church is called to be holy. Second, the church is called to be united. Flip over to chapter 12. And I'm not going to take time to read this whole passage. You're probably well familiar with it. But if you look at verse 4, there are diversities of spirits, but the same uh, gifts, but the same spirit, differences of administration, but the same Lord. And, and then he goes down through and gives the picture of a body and say, we're not all arms, we're not all legs, we're not all feet, but we're all part of the body. But once a church begins to tolerate sin, once we deviate from our commitment to holiness, we are wide open for division. Because then we have no common ground to focus on. So again, as I said, it's not that we don't ever sin. But what is our response to sin? Are we willing to repent of sin? So just like holiness, unity is to be one of the hallmarks of the church. And we find that when we have a mutual commitment to truth. And that is what we are called to over and over again. And that is why so many times there are, there are problems and conflict in the body of Christ. Because our first commitment is not to truth. It's to my understanding or the way I have always done things or the way that you are different than I am. You see, only God can make us subjects of unity. It's so easy to focus on other things. You know, we become the church of so-and-so leader. Or we become the church of a certain worship style. Or we become the church of homeschoolers. Or, or we become the church of a certain style of dress. Or we become the church of a certain tradition. We often stumble at the mistaken identity or understanding that unity is the same thing as uniformity. And it's not. Unity is a divine work of God. Uniformity is a product of human effort. Only God can make us subjects of unity. And God desires, if you look at this passage, God desires togetherness, not sameness. A body that functions together, not everybody being an arm, everybody being a leg, everybody being a hand. Consider Jesus' ministry parameters. 
in his day, there, there was a huge part of his ministry was the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus never tried to make the Jews Gentiles. Nor did he try to make the Gentiles Jews. Right? And as with holiness, we cannot correctly define God-desired unity unless we can say what it's not. You see, unity does not require ignoring truth of Scripture. Unity does not require somehow resorting to the lowest common denominator of belief. Unity does not require discounting sin. What does unity require? Unity requires believers to love other believers despite disagreement, putting every difference in this perspective. Jesus was asked, what, what is the greatest commandment? He said there are two. The greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. To love your neighbor. Jesus said, by this will all people, the world, those outside the body of Christ, this is how they will know that you belong to me. If you have love one for another. You see, there is tragedy many times in striving for uniformity instead of unity. Because uniformity does not require grace. There's no grace needed for uniformity. Unity requires grace. You see, our unity is most expressed when we can love other believers who are not like us. Because who does that put on, on display? That puts Christ on display. When I can only love other believers who do exactly the way I do, that puts me and them on display. That doesn't put the grace of God on display. Listen, there will never be a church that is unaffected by the culture around it. It appears God didn't intend it to be that way. And while there will always will be distinctions and differences in the body of Christ, that doesn't mean there has to be division. Walls build up where believers cannot love one another and affirm what one another is doing. Too many times we're like the disciples of Jesus came to him and said, we saw some other, and, and they wouldn't follow us. Let's pray fire down on them. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He that is not against us is what? Is for us. You see, unity is attained through the integration of differences in practice, not the annihilation of differences. There's always been disagreement in the church, and perhaps there always will be. And part of that is because Paul says, we see through a glass dimly. And as I've said before, we need to recognize that all of us miss the point at some point. None of us has supreme revelation from God. And the differences, disagreements, distinctions can grow us 
can stretch us, can humble us, can hold us accountable if our primary commitment is to truth. Not to a tradition, not to the way I've always seen things, but to truth. You see, that type of unity is something to be desired, not something to be feared. Diversity in the body of Christ may be one of our greatest assets, our greatest strengths. But such diversity will require us to remain passionate about truth. Passionate about truth and compassionate toward other people. Well, flip over to 1 Corinthians 13 and we'll look at this last one. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul concludes... End of his chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and, and he says, uh, at the end of chapter 12, he says, But I show you a more excellent way. The church is called to be loving. Paul has said in chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up. And all of us have knowledge. All of us have our own truth. But it's not our truth that sets us free. It's God's truth that sets us free. It's Jesus that sets the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. So, Paul is saying that knowledge can tend to puff us up. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be ignorant to be loving, but it also means that just because you have all biblical knowledge and understanding does not mean that you're loving. Notice this chapter. I'm not going to take time to read it. We all are so impressed, and, and, and 1 Corinthians 13 is a favorite. We, we love the sentiment, don't we, of 1 Corinthians 13. It, it's beautiful. We use it on cards, and, and it often is the kind of the, the centerpiece of a marriage ceremony. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful in any relationship. But where it is most powerful is when we put it back in the context that it was given. 1 Corinthians 13 was not given about marriage. Are you surprised? I dare say that most of us, that's where we've heard it most, right? And it, is, it does apply to marriage. But 1 Corinthians 13 was given in the context of the church. That's where it was given. And so it's appropriate for us today. We are to do what is loving toward other believers rather than not just what we feel free to do. And... If you have any exercise in relationships, whether it's in your home, in your family, in your marriage, with friends, as well as even in a church, you understand well that only love enables us to have unity in the body of Christ. Nothing else will secure that unity. No creed of faith, no statement of belief, no church covenant, no anything can secure that unity. So, so what do we do about our disagreements with one another? What do we do about our disagreements from one congregation to another? What, what do we do with those? Love one another. Love one another. It doesn't mean we become all one congregation, but we still love one another. And why is it that we resort to other things? Why is it that we can speak so disparagingly of other churches, other believers? 
1 Corinthians 13, these are beautiful words and they're true words, but they really take on power when you look at them in the original context is with the church. You see, love will motivate and it'll continue and contribute to all the other gifts that Paul talks about. 1 Corinthians 13 shows us vividly how love excels. Now, you and I have probably all said, we certainly have heard, that love is action, right? Uh, words are cheap. You know, you, you say you love someone, but, but that doesn't mean anything. And, and I get it. We say that in, to counter the sentiment in the world about us that love is a feeling. I mean, how else you explain it when you hear sometimes that two people see one another at this for the first time and they instantly fell in love? How, how can that be? I mean, and so we say, no, love is not merely a feeling. Love is action. But I want us to notice in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not just action. Do you see that? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though I have the gift of prophecy, Though I have all faith, I can move mountains. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, are those actions? I would say those are pretty big actions. But Paul says, if I do all those things and I do not have love in my heart, it profits nothing. Do we realize that this morning? When we think about relating to other believers in the body of Christ, having love toward them, and how do we define that? Love is a disposition of favor toward. Do we really want their best? Can we bless them in their pursuit of God, even despite their failings and shortcomings? Because if we look at a mirror, we have those as well, don't we? They may look different. So love is more than action. That action has to be on a foundation of love for people. And most importantly, love for the body of Christ. Well, Paul points to actions that we all would say were powerful. But he says, without love? I mean, give all you want. You may impress people, but unless it's out of a love for people, he says it profits nothing. So, true love that the Bible talks about, that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13, is never concerned with impressing others with our importance, with our knowledge, with our money, with our possessions, our accomplishments. Love of self is vitally concerned with those things. So when we find ourselves doing things that promote us, that's love of self. That's not love of others. That's not the love that is most excellent. So I conclude with the question I start with. What is the purpose of the church? What is the church supposed to be like? Paul says the church 
is to manifest, is to proclaim, is to show, is to demonstrate who God is to the world. How else are they to know that God is a God of love? Despite knowing that they are unworthy of love, that no one would love me, that I have done some terrible things, how are they to understand that God loves them? Except as they witness the church. How are they to understand that God is holy? That right and wrong matter by how they watch the church deal with right and wrong. The church's commitment to right and wrong. Not that you, well, you're a good old buddy, you're in the group now, you're clever, whatever. No. Truth matters. How are they to understand that? By witnessing the church. How are they to understand that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are united? There's unity there. Different function, but unity by witnessing the church. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't have all have the same experience. We don't all come from the same background. But our focus on Christ and on truth unites us. Despite our differences, it may cause us to worship in different groups and have distinctions. That need not disrupt our unity in the body of Christ. Unless we choose to allow it to be that way. Listen, brothers and sisters, when our greatest desire is to be defined by the particular way that we follow Christ, then we will not manifest the unity of the body of Christ. Our greatest desire needs to be to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ. When we get to heaven, what's it going to be like? You think there are only going to be people in heaven that, that, that follow Christ the way you do? Are you kidding me? We may well walk up and say, boy, I didn't think you'd be here. Wow, really? You see, because our, our focus on unity is not on the right thing. It has to be on Christ. So our challenge for us is, Let's be committed as a congregation to truth. Let's be a congregation that's more about what we're for than what we're against. Let's proclaim truth. And in so doing, let's be encouraging to other believers, not condemning of them. For that is not our role. They do not stand or fall before us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your body, the church. Thank you that you were willing to give your son to redeem us. And you have chosen the church as a manifestation of your love. You've chosen the church to extend your ministry of reconciliation. You have received your son, Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church, back to heaven. He's seated at your right hand. And Father, we desire to be faithful to the mission of the church. Help us, Father, to seek holiness, to seek unity, and to love each other and our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as you have commanded us to. This we ask in the name of Christ.